0: and you can get an extra three months free. ExpressVPN.com slash SlashFilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to SlashFilm Daily for Monday, August 23rd, 2021. On today's episode of the show, we're going to have another mini water cooler episode. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm a senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I am joined on today's episode by SlashFilm news editor, White Trambouille.
1: Hey, everyone.
0: All right, HC, let's jump into what we've been doing. I have not really been doing much. It's been a little rainy here in Florida, but I see that you've been doing something very exciting. What have you been up to lately?
1: I saw Chris Evangelista in person.
0: Wow. <laughs> that was Unreal. very exciting for me. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened?
1: Uh, well, we went to see a screening of a movie that I cannot talk about yet, but um, Chris will be reviewing it, and I just tagged along. And uh, we just hung out a little bit and watched the movie together, like old times.
0: Oh, man. That must have been, yeah, a really nice reminder of uh, the, the pre-pandemic days. That's that's really cool. Um, it also seems like you, uh, <laughs> you had um, some karaoke adventures.
1: I did. If you notice my Twitter profile, it is my new profile picture. I went to karaoke for my friend's birthday, and uh, this was, you know, closed room karaoke, we had a room to ourselves, uh, sanitized everything, everyone's vaccinated, um, and uh, we just had some fun, let loose, ordered some champagne, and subsequently, I lost my voice.
0: So, what is your go-to song, HT?
1: Oh, well, for a long time, my go-to song was uh, Madonna's Like a Prayer, but um, I... I don't really have a go-to one anymore. I just want to just do whatever. Like this was the one that we did that blew out my voice. I'm pretty sure it was uh green days, Jesus of suburbia, <laughs> uh, which is a full nine minute song. So that will do it. If anything, wow. what other,
0: uh, what other highlights of the night were there song wise for you?
1: Oh, we sang Blink 182's I Miss You. That was a lot of fun. Just uh we did a whole 80s bash. It was it was a good time. It was a good time.
0: Nice. That's awesome. Uh all right. So let's move into what we've been reading. Uh, I read something recently. I read a book called What the Wind Knows by Amy Harmon. And um yeah, this book, uh HD, I think you might like this book. It's um it's about this woman who is an author and uh, her grandfather used to tell her she lives in the United States. Her grandfather is from Ireland originally, and he raised her on stories of Ireland and and sort of explaining some of the mythology and everything that, that goes into uh, that country's culture. And her grandfather dies at the beginning of the book. And she ends up traveling to his, his Irish homestead to spread his ashes. And then she ends up getting sucked back in time to, uh, Ireland of like the early 1920s where, um, you know, the the country's on the brink of war and she finds herself interacting with all of these, um, famous people, you know, revolutionaries and and sort of radicals and, uh, people who are, who are, um, involved in like, I guess it would be like an early version of the IRA. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just, there's a romance, a giant, like time spanning romance element to the whole thing too. Um, where she ends up sort of falling for this guy that that uh, was was like mentioned briefly by her grandfather in the beginning so she's she's sort of as a as a writer she has like a vague understanding of this time period and some of the major players within it but then when she finds herself sort of whisked back into this world, she um you know she realizes that the difference essentially between like reading words on a page and actually like living some of these these uh major like historical events and everything so um yeah it's called what the wind knows amy Harmon is the author and uh i i enjoyed it it's, it's maybe a little predictable at, at times but um I, I thought it was a good read so. so it's
1: a time travel romance essentially yeah
0: yeah yeah uh Yeah, not bad. Okay, so uh, I don't think you've been reading anything recently, HTL, so let's jump into what we've been watching. Uh, Let's start with you. I've I've been talking for a while, so what have you been watching?
1: Uh, I recently watched Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. You can see my full review of it on SlashFilm.com. That just went up today. And despite the sort of what people deem to be a lower rating, uh, because I hate numerical ratings, I think that they just kind of... (laughs) Detract from the larger discourse that people can have about yeah. movies, despite what it might seem that my rating is is really low for this movie, I actually did enjoy it it 's a good, not great marvel film um, it 's definitely refreshingly not the least marvel of the solo or origin films, which I found really fun and and good to watch um, the The film can basically be divided into two halves the first is sort of this fish-out-of-water story that is um, this sort of martial arts-driven, streetwise type of uh, tournament uh, story. And then the second half turns into this giant, ambitious, epic, Chinese mythological epic. And I enjoyed both of them. I think that the first half actually was a little bit stronger because the second half does kind of uh, fall into the CGI muddle, especially in the third act that a lot of Marvel films are wont to do but uh, it's saved by the excellent, excellent martial arts uh, choreography, the fight choreography is Incredible in this film, uh, it was choreographed by Brad Allen, who uh, recently passed. He is uh, given credits, uh, a lovely tributes in the credits for Shang Chi, and he was a member of the Jackie Chan stunt team, and he brings a lot of that Hong Kong uh, verisimilitude, uh, that that ap- that style to Shang Chi, and uh, Simu Lu, who plays Shang Chi is very up to the task of that physicality. He used to be a stuntman and he, uh, you can see that he trained hard and he's, he's definitely all in on the the fight scenes. It's not edited to high, high hell as many a Hollywood martial arts movie is. Mm-hmm. Um, but the MVP for this movie for me was Tony Lung, And I say this, as someone who admittedly is a very, very big Tony Lung fan. Uh, I think he's one of the greatest screen actors of our generation of the past 40 years. And I think that he kind of dominates this movie, his presence dominates this movie in a way that both helps and hinders the film. It helps in that I unexpectedly, he becomes kind of the co-lead of this film in a lot of ways, he he plays the villain, so to speak, but he's almost more of a, a tragic anti-hero, um, and it hinders it in that Simulu uh, kind of gets buried in all of Tony Leung's charisma and <laughs> some of the more. Um, heavy family drama that comes with the latter half of the film especially. So it's it's a mixed bag but it's one of the better mixed bags is what i'm saying.
0: Okay, all right. So i'm curious about um Simulu, you know, you mentioned that he handled the physicality really well. I think I'm trying to think if I've seen him in anything I have not seen Kim's convenience which was the sitcom that he was on for a while several seasons I think um, I, I don't think I'm really familiar with him as a performer so what, what did you make of his performance overall did you think that he was like a uh, a good fit for the MCU
1: I think he's a great comedian I think especially in the first half of the film where he kind of plays this everyman type of character he's really really funny he's really charming uh, but so during so some of the dramatic scenes i think he struggles a little bit Mm. um but the film does tap into his innately funny qualities and especially the comedic duo that he strikes up with aquafina who's another scene stealer in the film they have a great dynamic great pairing and i like seeing them together uh but i do think that yeah he kind of gets lost in the latter half uh of the film
0: gotcha all right what else you been watching
1: What else have I been watching? I also watched and reviewed The Protégé, the new film directed by Martin Campbell and starring Maggie Q, Michael Keaton, Samuel L. Jackson. It stinks. Read my (laughs) review. Uh, But it is pretty cool seeing Michael Keaton back in fighting shape. I almost got the feeling that this movie was him ramping up to (laughs) becoming Batman again, because I'm like, oh, wow, he really just, uh, just stepped into those shoes again. But I wondered if it was like, this is his way to to just get back into shape and prepare for that. But that was also just my feeling. Anyways, the protege, I don't recommend. Okay.
0: Uh, well, as there, are there any redeeming qualities in it besides, uh, I mean, it, it actually is Michael Keaton a redeeming quality in it, or is it just like one of those movies that you sort of feel like, um. What's that movie? Did you ever see Need for Speed, the 2014 movie starring Aaron Paul? I haven't seen it, no. Okay. Michael Keaton plays a supporting role in that and he's just like a guy in a room and it's it's clear that he shot his entire role in like a day and a half or something. And like, (laughs) you know, it's just a purely paycheck gig for him and it looks like he was having a little bit of fun, but it's not like... Uh, you know, he's a big draw in that in that uh, movie. So do you think this is a similar kind of thing or or will like diehard Michael Keaton fans find more to uh, appreciate about the prototype?
1: I think the latter because Michael Keaton is a, having a blast in this movie and he does actually have a more significant role than Man in Room. <laughs> uh, he and Maggie Q have a sort of uh, love or hate relationship in a way, sort of that push-pull dynamic. Uh, and uh, one scene that is a... An echo of Mr. and Mrs. Smith, if um, to tease anything. But yeah, he's, he's great. If anything, watching this, I was like, wow, I kind of wish Michael Keaton was the lead in this. No offense <laughs> to Maggie Q, but he's, he's just a charmer, a charmer and a half. He's so charismatic. Uh, Michael Keaton, just still on movies left and right.
0: Excellent. All right. What else have you been watching?
1: I watched the Rurouni Kenshin live-action movies. Um, I actually had seen... The first Rurouni Kenshin live action movie, back when it first came out, I think in like 2012, but I was inspired or motivated to finish the trilogy there's an original trilogy of films before the most recent films that came out which were released on netflix and i saw oh i I forgot that they even had done this series i remember liking the first film and i thought that i should catch up and um and revisit this this series that i had really enjoyed Um, the most recent films on netflix are aroni kenshin the final and aroni kenshin the beginning the beginning is a sort of prequel film that's a standalone story if you ever want to dive into Rurouni Kenshin without all of the back uh, stories. Okay, so
0: AC I've never heard of any of this. So what's like the basic gist
1: here? Alright, so <laughs> Rurouni Kenshin is a story it's a samurai story that takes place in, I want to say 1800s Japan and it follows a wandering ronin, a Roroni who has um, basically uh, sworn that he will never kill a single person and he carries around this very strange blade that is actually blunt on the one w- would be the sharp side and sharp on the uh back side and um the the adventures of roni kenshin follow him as he wanders around the country saving people and protecting lives and uh abiding by his his ode his code to not kill a single soul and it's actually one of my favorite manga as I've ever read. Manga is the, the comic version of an anime. Um, the anime is a classic too, but it also is one of those 90s animes that it takes like three episodes to go through an entire fight. <laughs> so the manga is a great way to just kind of speed through that, those those long fight scenes and actually get to the good heart of the story. And uh, I've always really enjoyed Veroni Kenshin and the live action film, uh, which was released, Yes, yeah, I'm going to say 2012, uh, is actually quite good. It's one of the best live action adaptations of an anime i've ever seen if not the best hollywood has been trying to you know adapt anime for so long and they really have been beaten to the punch by japan who's already done it with veroni kenshin i will say um but yeah they the benefit of it is that they cast takeru soto sato who is really really perfectly cast as um Himura Kenshin, Roroni Kenshin, because he kind of has to play both the fool as well as the hardened warrior at the same time. He does that so well. And um, that's what I really love about Roroni Kenshin. It's a very gentle uh, character and soul at the center of a very violent story. Um, and uh, the live action movies are great. They are, you know, Grounded in sort of some kind of historical realism, while being slightly anime in terms of the outrageousness of their fights, but they are probably the best in terms of juggling both tones, I will say. And the first, the original trilogy too, which is part one, part two, and part three. I think the legend end is the legend ends is the final, um, the third film in that is um, is really great. It they are a bit overstuffed because they try to fit like five anime arcs or like five manga arcs into each film but um the power for the power of the performances and the exceptional exceptional fight scenes like they're they're great fight scenes they're more than just you know what you kind of expect from a very over-the-top anime fight scenes they actually do sword choreography and martial arts for choreography in a way that's really Satisfying to watch. Mm. So I i really enjoyed revisiting and watching that trilogy and going to the new films. I haven't watched the final yet, but I watched the beginning because it's actually my favorite part of the Roni kenshin story, because it's a tragic backstory and it's a tragic romance set to a political, um, like politically turmoiled war backdrop. And uh it's it's great. Uh it's a little slow, but um, there's an opening scene where uh, the Himura, Himura Kenshin, before he becomes a Ruroni, he's an assassin at this time, uh, kills a bunch of people with a knife in his, with a sword in his teeth. And Whoa. It's super cool.
0: <laughs> nice. I should uh, you'd so, enjoy it, Ben. Okay, yeah. I might I might have to check this out. Where did you watch these?
1: So uh, you can watch the beginning and the final on Netflix, but the other ones you have to rent.
0: Okay, gotcha. All right, yeah, so I'll, I'll add that to my cue. Uh, what else have you been watching, Ishii?
1: I've also watched Hard Boiled. So Shang-Chi put me in a Tony Lung mood. I don't think I even raved out that much about how much I love Tony Lung in my brief summation of Shang-Chi, but he really is the scene stealer, and he uh, is so good in Shang-Chi, and just kind of a reminder of how he is is so great at... at portraying emotions that are roiling beneath the surface and uh, and having that charisma and swagger. So I was in a mood to watch uh, Tony Leung kicking people. And I decided to pop on Hard Boiled, which, by the way, is impossible to find on streaming anywhere. Uh, so I watched it in a grainy version on YouTube. Don't do this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, man. What a bummer. You're talking about the John Woo movie, right? Yes.
1: The John Woo, me- John Woo movie starring Chow Yun-fat and Tony Leung. Tony Leung plays an undercover cop. Uh, sort of similar to his role in Infernal Affairs, uh, and um, they're both great in this. It's the, it's the most John Woo movie, and it's I think one of the last Hong Kong action movies before uh, the the action like genre started to like that that kind of genre started to close down in Hong Kong, and John Woo and other filmmakers start to move to Hollywood. So they really kind of gun it. It's they they the the accelerator on everything because there's <laughs> they just explode everything. There's incredible insane fight scenes. Chow Yun Fat guns down a a group of gangsters with a cigarette and a toothpick in his mouth for maximum cool. Right after playing <laughs> a saxophone, um, Tony Leung is a wonderful um, as always. I'll rate at playing that. That sort of tortured character. And um, he, yeah, it's the dynamic between them is great. The film is insane. And uh, if you can find it through legal means and through less grainy means than I, I highly recommend you check out Hardboiled.
0: Yeah, both Hard and The Killer uh, from John Woo are, are two movies that I would recommend like uh, blind buying on you know Blu-ray if they're available or DVD or like whatever sort of official form you have to, to and it doesn't matter how much they cost, <laughs> like it's worth it to have like a real version of that in your home so you can watch it in a, a clearer version than a, a grainy YouTube um, uh, cut or bootleg or whatever, because... Those movies are so, so great for, I mean, if you have like any interest in the action genre whatsoever, those are like instant, you know, must buy kind of purchases. So, um, yeah, I I, uh, I echo all of your love for hard, hard-boiled men. That, that um, one take shot with the elevator at the very end oh, uh, yes. is just like, you know, stuff of legend. So. What um, is it
1: with Hong Kong action movies and elevators? <laughs> Gotta <to> say,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. So one more thing you've been watching, HT.
1: Lastly, I revisited the Virgin Suicides for the first time since um, I watched it as a teen, and this was kind of inspired by a series of, of feature articles that we recently published on SlashFilm.com. We published uh, the top fifteen movies of our new staff writers, and uh, one of our recent staff writers, ha- Marissa Mirabelle, had included the Virgin Suicides in her list. And I remember I was reading it, and I thought, wow, I really did like the version Suicides. And I haven't seen it since I was a teenager. I wonder if it will hold up now. And folks, it does. It's great. It's, um, it's interesting to me because the book is written by Jeffrey Eugenides, I'm pretty sure. And it's interesting how with Sophia Coppola's um, direction, it almost is a an unpacking a dissection of that male gaze that the story is rooted in and that I'm sure Jeffrey Genades, I haven't read the original book, um, wrote his story in. And it almost seems rebellious in a lot of ways. Like this is a woman's world and maybe men will never be able to understand it. And maybe that's the way that women want it. And this is the one thing that these teenage girls who uh, who are so long suffering in their in their small worlds Uh, can do to um, take back their agency. So it's a really, really great um, movie. Again, something that I had forgotten was so sort of cheeky and fun, uh, especially towards the beginning before it descends into, you know, the tragedy of it all. But version suicides, still excellent
0: man yeah i have not revisited this in i think i saw it one time like 15 years ago and really liked it a lot at that time and have not really thought about it much since then but it sounds like i'm i'm due for a rewatch as well i remember kirsten dunce being really great and also thinking that that movie did a really great job of using uh, josh hartnett well Mm -hmm. um you know he's one of those guys that i feel like Hollywood kind of tried to make him a, a full-on leading man there for a while. And he just seemed to uh, bristle with that a little bit. And I feel like he's much more comfortable in supporting roles and, and more sort of character actory roles. But this was like around that time when he was trying to be pushed to the forefront. But I, I still remember him doing a, a pretty good job in there. Does, does his performance hold up? my Is my memory <laughs> serving me correctly there?
1: No, yeah, it holds up a lot. It, like all the performances in that movie are genuinely great.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. All right. So that's uh Sophia Coppola's Version Suicides. Where did you watch that, uh, HC?
1: Where did I watch it? It was on streaming, I will say.
0: Okay. Somewhere streaming. <laughs> somewhere Check out streaming. justwatch.com. It's a great website that tells you where everything is streaming. So that's where I go all the time. Uh all right. So I just wanted to mention two things uh briefly, one of which is The Green Knight, which I know is your uh your bag, HC. It's your favorite favorite movie of this year so far. Oh, yes, for um, sure. Um I really enjoyed this movie. It was uh man, what a flick like a visual, um, <laughs> a feast of a movie. Good God, like the colors. And I feel like you could really just uh, grab screenshots from any section of this, of this movie and like hang them up on the wall. There just, it's that kind of film where like every um, you know, every piece of the production design, I know there were a lot of like matte paintings used and stuff to, to create the, uh, the extension of this world. And, and, uh, a lot of that I thought was like really beautifully and seamlessly done. I mean, they, they filmed it in Ireland and some of those locations are just jaw dropping, but I could not see the seams in terms of where, uh, a lot of that stuff was, um, was extended digitally or, or created, you know, or or helped out using map paintings at all. Um, Deb Patel is, is, uh, terrific in the, in the lead role. And, um, Man, there's just, it, it's the kind of movie that you just really like want to sit there and sit in and think about for a long, long time after you've seen it. There's so much going on on a, a thematic level. There's so much that writer, director David Lowry has on his mind that he's trying to explore in this movie. Um, I should have talked about this last so we could save the spoiler for the very, very end of this episode, but I, I want to talk to you real quick, HT, about the very, very end of the movie. So uh-huh. uh, if you have not seen The Green Knight yet, uh, it's available on. Digital right now. Uh I, I rented it on Amazon or something like that. I think it was I think it's a twenty dollar rental right now. Um if you've not seen the Green Knight yet, then skip ahead a few minutes because I want to I wanna discuss the ending. So I'm gonna give you just a few more seconds to skip, you know, if you're like in the middle of folding laundry or something, it's your your final warning. Okay, so the very end of the movie, Ace. Do you think that the Green Knight actually beheads Deb Patel's character, like, you know, right after the film cuts to Black, essentially?
1: I am of the opinion that he does.
0: Okay, interesting. Because I, uh, my first, uh, and I just saw this like a day or two ago, and I feel like I still need time to sort of uh, simmer in it a little bit more and, and really um, reflect on on what it is that David Lowry is trying to say with this movie. But my first reaction was the Green Knight sort of like smiles, like he smirks at, at uh, Dev Patel's character and says... You know, I forget what the exact line is, but head. something like, "Yeah, and you know, well done, Sir Knight, and now off with your head, or something yeah, like that, yeah. right?" Um, so it it seemed to me as if like his character had sort of uh, passed a test of some kind that the, that the Green Knight, you know, was um was testing him. And Dev Patel, you know, he he goes through that whole thing where like he sees the vision of what his future life would be like, and he decides, "Okay, I want to I want to die with honor here." And he takes off that um, that green girdle, and I think that is like the the moment where that the green knight was waiting for where he was kind of like, okay, so you, you know, by, by doing this, you've shown me that you've learned a lesson and you've, you've become a man, you know, that's sort of the, the journey, the arc of this character going from this. So I think you called him a cad or, or maybe uh, David Lowry called him a cad. Yeah. Um, you know, this sort of caddish, uh, uh I think somebody else called him like a a medieval fuck boy. Um <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh so like you know, going from that character to somebody who uh who sort of has grown up a little bit by the end of the movie. But yeah, the the um the green knight played by what is his name? Uh Ralph Innocent. Ralph Ineson, yes. Uh his um that little smirk there at the end, I kind of came away from the movie thinking like, oh, maybe he doesn't actually cut his head off right there. Maybe it just means, you know, you've you've um you've, you've, uh, passed this test and now, you know, like get out of here, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see, uh, sort of what your life has in, in store for you. And then did you see the post credit scene? HG? I
1: did. I stuck around for that. Yeah.
0: Okay. So what do you make of that? Cause I've not read anything about that or, or seen anybody talk about that. I kind of, am wondering if that is, um, cause it's a little girl, right? Like holding mm-hmm. and, you know, in the, in the future vision that Dev Patel's character has, Uh, He has a son who dies on the battlefield, um, but I don't think he has a daughter in that vision. So this little girl here, I'm wondering if that is Dev Patel's character's daughter in quote-unquote real life, like after the Green Knight has sort of like let him go, you know, in in my interpretation of of what's happening here. Um, Maybe Dev Patel and uh, maybe Alicia Vikander's character or maybe somebody else, um, you know, maybe he fathers this this daughter who uh, is like, you know, uh, if not directly in line for the succession of the throne or whatever is like um, toying with the, you know, what it means that, to, to to wear this crown. So uh, what was your interpretation of that?
1: So if you want to be a, a loyalist to the 14th century poem that the green knight adapts, he doesn't die. Actually Gawain uh, lives and it's revealed that the green knight is actually the Lord uh, played in the film by Joel Edgerton uh, who is, Essentially, was you know, doing this whole thing as a test of Gawain's honor and chivalry, and that everything that took place in the castle was also part of the test as well. So, if you want to stick by that, then then I think that also works. But I like to read into it as um, I think I, I I prefer more the sort of nature um, heavy themes of this film especially that idea that nature is kind of merciless and relentless and all consuming. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially when we get to the later latter half of the film and he's heading towards the green chapel and the entire film takes on this sort of sickly yellow color that looks like uh, like sick leaves or sick um, greenery. And I think that it's just kind of, even if he has made this decision and made this, this sacrifice and and finally, won his honor. Uh, nature will, you know, acknowledge that he is an honorable person, but still take that life. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's this is my reading that his his ego death, this this that entire um, last uh, temptation of Christ type of montage flash to his life if he ran away uh, is essential to him finally accepting his death. So ego death death by ego death kind of thing Uh, that's my that's my reading of it uh i'm sure like it's i'm sure if i talk to david laura he'd be like that's wrong or something i don't know but that's what i i like to to took i that's what i took away from the film when i watched it
0: yeah i mean i love that though because i i think that's that's a different way than i look at it but that's it's the kind of movie where like i think it encourages all this kind of different interpretations and and um different ways of thinking about the film. And, and I think, you know, like a lot of this stuff, all of it is like sort of equally valid. So um yeah, I, I really enjoyed it on that level for sure. Uh Okay. So the one other thing that I wanted to mention was I watched the Samurai Trilogy, which is directed by Hiroshi Inagaki. Uh, I had never really heard of these movies before, but I knew that they starred uh, Toshiro Mofune, who is, um, you know, this incredible Japanese actor, and he worked a lot with Kurosawa. And uh, I've been, you know, slowly working my way through some of Kurosawa's filmography and and watching uh, Mifune in movies like uh, High and Low and Sanjuro and um, things like that. And, and just seeing, you know, how dynamic and incredible of a performer he was. Uh, I just wanted to watch him do other stuff under a different filmmaker and just sort of see you know, what, what else he had, uh, to offer there. And the Samurai Trilogy, which is compi- comprised of three movies that came out between 1954 and 1956, uh, the first of which actually won an Oscar for best like international film or whatever they called it back in the day, um, is very good. Uh, all of them are, um, you know, it's, it's basically, it's kind of the, the Dev Patel in Green Knight story where like the uh, Mifune plays this character who is like a young guy who, um. You know, dreams of glory on the battlefield and all that, and he uh, basically becomes a Ronin, kind of like the the uh, stories that you were mentioning earlier, HD, the the uh, Ronin tension. Yeah, um, he becomes a Ronin and sort of like spends these this trilogy like wandering, you know, from adventure to adventure, and it's very um, you know uh, vignettey, kind of like where he he rolls into an area and. And uh, meets characters and and sort of tries to save a small village from bandits or whatever the case may be. Um, and the thing that I think, uh, in addition to Mifune's performance, which is great, and like the uh, there's a ton of swordplay. You're, you're talking about how um, in the in the uh, the trilogy that you are watching, you know, violence is sort of like all around this character, but this character has a has like taken an oath to not be violent, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that is absolutely not what happens with Mafune's character. He is one of these guys that like uh, embraces the sword. And like that, that is his character arc is he goes from this guy who's like super strong and um, very uh, you know, like live by the sword, die by the sword kind of thing to like learning um, more to, to becoming a wiser character and knowing like, okay, not every single situation uh, needs to end in a fight needs to end this way. And it is a lot about, you know um that growth as a character over the over the course of these three movies there's um uh another character that is introduced i believe in the second film that is like essentially like the the um samurai movies equivalent of like the fastest gun in the west who is really gunning for mufune's character because he's known as like this um you know fearsome swordsman who is the the you know most dangerous guy in the whole land or whatever and, and so it's a lot about legacy and and sort of um this idea of like um, you know, being, having a target at your back, if you're standing on the top of the mountain and like what that means and what you're willing to, to, uh, to do to keep that position and, and sort of what sacrifices you need to make in terms of your, your love life and all of that. And and the, all the, the only other thing that I wanted to mention about this trilogy, uh, is that there's a ton of melodrama in it, which I was not expecting at all. There's, there's, uh, it's so much more like a, um, like a uh, <laughs> like a soap opera or something, the the uh, romantic relationships that are on display here, and you know people longing for each other, and like multiple characters, and like it gets into this sort of twisted romantic uh, uh, like a love triangle situation with <laughs> with characters that you wouldn't necessarily expect. And uh, man, I just I I found myself very taken by the imagery here that that um, Inagaki was able to capture. There are some sword fights and, and big duels that are um you know certainly uh have had huge influences on things like kill bill and like the ghost of Tsushima the the new playstation video game that came out not too long ago i know there was like a kurosawa mode in this but after or in that game but after watching this a trilogy of movies, I'm like, oh my God, this this had just as much influence on the creation of that game as anything that Kurosawa did, I think. Um, and especially that last movie, uh, which is called Samurai 3 Duel at Ganru, uh, Ganryu Island. um, features this this final confrontation that I thought was really, really wonderfully staged. And um, yeah, just like emotionally uh, powerful to see Mufune's character go from like that, that early uh, place all the way through to this this uh, position of growth. So um, the Samurai Trilogy is streaming on uh, the Criterion Channel right now. It's also uh, all three movies are on HBO Max. If you people want to check those out, and I would encourage it. Uh, any any closing thoughts here on on anything else, HC? Any any final thoughts you can think of?
1: No. Um, I think we just really like swords and people kicking ass today.
0: <laughs> yes, we do. All right. Excellent. Well, uh, yeah, that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode of Slash Film Daily. You can find more about the stories that we mentioned. Uh, actually, we didn't mention any stories. We're just talking about what we've been watching. Well, you I find about
1: my reviews. Oh, yeah,
0: yeah. I'll, I'll drop those in the show notes. So um, yeah, your reviews for what? Shang-Chi, or, Shang-Chi,
1: Shang-Chi and, and, and The Protégé.
0: The Protégé. <laughs> yes, I will, I will mention those or, or link those in the show notes so people can Click on those and read the full thing. I would encourage everybody to do that. Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all of the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at peter at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mentioned your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you all for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow.